I don't mean to brag and I don't mean to boast, but I was voted in the top five my senior year for most likely to succeed. How about that, huh? Now, before you guys think that you have a celebrity pastor, uh, I grew up in a small town. I think I graduated with under 150 people, so top five is not really a big thing. But uh, if they could see me now, am I right? Look at this, you know? I mean, look, this is most likely to succeed. You are in the presence of greatness. Ah, thank you. A few people cheered and a few people laughed. The people who cheered, I love you. The people who laughed, see me after service, please. I'm joking, of course. Greatness is something that all of us think about in some way. You may not feel like you do, but you do. Uh, I I often have this uh, question in my heart. Am I fully living up to my full potential? Or in my case, am I really as great as I think I am in my head? This is the two things that I constantly ask myself. And, And all of us want to be called great. If we show up to your funeral, you're going to want to be called great. It's like you were a great boss if you're leading a team. You were a great friend. You were a great spouse, husband or wife. You were a great boyfriend or girlfriend. You were a great parent, father or mother. In some ways, greatness is a fine thing to strive for. God has me in a season of redefining greatness in my life. Because he's saying, I need you to know what greatness looks like. Because we can so easily get sucked into the world's definition of greatness. This is a thing that all of us are faced with. We care about what other people think of us. We listen to things that talk about how to manage our uh, productivity or to lead this certain way or to do this certain thing. To be the greatest version of ourselves that we can. But there is actually a heavenly perspective on greatness. And it's going to say there's going to be a heavenly definition. And if we are to call ourselves the followers of the way, if we were to call ourselves Jesus followers, we have to rid ourselves over and over again of worldly definitions and put on the mind of Christ and put on the identity of Christ And then we can say we are great when we have the heavenly perspective of greatness, all right? Jesus is going to tell us exactly how it works. So often, the the hardest thing that I see in in leading a church is that so often we want to live to the world's standards and sprinkle a little Jesus on our lives. And Jesus says, you need to ignore the world's standards, and I'm going to give you a new definition. Now, the joys of that is that it's often harder to do this way, all right? But he's going to call us to that. So if you call yourself a Jesus follower, we have to follow Jesus. Let's look at this, Mark 10, 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Jesus is leading his disciples. It's a common thing. A Jewish rabbi will be leading the way, and the disciples are following. And the teacher is leading the way. If you remember, he's on his way from Caesarea Philippi, the furthest way away, and he's heading down to Jerusalem. Now, there are two predictions of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem already, and we're going about to see a third. And if you remember, the Jewish Jew- Jerusalem leaders were sending spies up 
to follow Jesus and confront Jesus. The, the, the disciples would have known what's going on. And now Jesus is going into the heart of the opposition to him. So no longer there needed to be spies because he's going straight into the heart of it. He's going to the epicenter of opposition. So let's read on. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who, who, who were followed were afraid. So there's two things going on. Jesus had already told the disciples what was going to happen in Jerusalem, and now the disciples have a human perspective. They're like, this man is crazy. They, they know what's going to happen, and their, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend at this point has told them what's going to happen, and they, he's walking into it. If you had a friend who was like, I know in this meeting that they're going to mock me, they're probably going to flog me, and they're going to kill me. As a good friend, you're like, don't go to the meeting. That would be my suggestion, all right? Like, this is crazy that you are doing that. But what we see is that they, the, the, the disciples' emotions are this. They're astonished and they're afraid. They know what's going to go down. And they may not have known exactly, but they have an inkling of what's about to go down. And Jesus' actions are surprising to the disciples. It says that this surprise also leads to fear. And he pulls the 12 aside. He says, again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and, he will, and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third predict prediction, and it's the most precise and comprehensive uh, 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 one uh, recorded. And we see that Jesus uses eight future tense verbs, all right, that he will be delivered over, that he'll be condemned to death, that would be handed over to the Gentiles, the ones who actually have authority to do something about him. And then while he's, that, he's done with that, before he's put to death, they're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to flog him, and then they're going to kill them. If you are a disciple, blow after blow after blow is hitting you in the face when he says this, all right? And so it's no surprise that they are astonished and afraid. And Jesus is going to give them these predictions. And they would have known these predictions. Uh, keep in mind, what he says is no different than what's been told for centuries when you look at the Hebrew text. But there's hope because the promise of the resurrection is there as well. But it's against this backdrop that this next story is going to happen, all right? So you have to understand that that's the backdrop. And now we see this. It's an odd request. Mark 10, 35 through 37, Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want for me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Over and over again, the disciples of Jesus, the men who set the path for us, the people who have set the pace for us, miss it. As a follower of Jesus, oftentimes we miss the message as well. We often don't see the direction that Jesus has for us. And we see here that James and John were the other two, if you remember, with Peter 
up on the mountain. They were the other two that were up on the mountain and they saw the transfiguration. What does that mean? They saw Jesus in his true glory. They know who he is. They saw with their own eyes who they, they, he is. They understood his power and his might and his glory. And they're going to miss it because they understand this, that Jesus has glory and they see who Jesus truly is. And their heart is that I want to be a part of it. They would have remembered that incredible event. And with that mindset, they ask for the highest honor that they could have. They want the authority within Jesus's glory. Okay. That's what they're asking for. If you remember, they know Jesus as the Messiah. The problem is, is they have a wrong definition of what that Messiah means. They know in their hearts and their minds that he is the salvation of all mankind, but they think, and they're still thinking that Jesus is getting ready to set up a kingdom, a kingdom that's going to come immediately. The disciples always were thinking that Jesus is setting up a kingdom and they still want Jesus to do it. They still want Jesus to take the political power. They still want Jesus to take the political power for Israel. They want it. They want, they know what will happen when the greatness, when he does it. And James and John are seeking self-glory within that mindset. So that's what's happening, okay? You have to understand that. James and John are seeking self-glory, and when it comes to it, they're saying, we want to be in the chief seats. They want to sit on their right. One of them wants to sit on the right, which is the main highest assigned position, and the other at his left, the next highest place in a royal court. They want to be part of his greatness with a worldly perspective, okay? So they have a worldly perspective, and Jesus is going to lay it straight. 38 through 40, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I baptized with, that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says this, to have a place of honor and glory, you have to share in my suffering because they are connected. Jesus is the example. Glory and suffering are connected. The kingdom math is not worldly math. To share in the glory of the kingdom, you are going to have to suffer. I love preaching up here and sharing these things. In worldly math, suffering is to be avoided at all cost. And glory is to be seeked at all cost. If you look at the American way, it could really be summed up with this. I want to suffer as little as possible, and I want to be glorified as much as possible. That is social media, right? Like, I'm not going to show any of my suffering or any of my pain. I'm going to show my glory, and I'm going to show you how my life is. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. If you are a Jesus follower, that's not how it works. The term cup was this Jewish metaphor. And it could mean two things. Sometimes it represents joy. It does not here, okay? I wish it did, but it doesn't. Because it's this metaphor of divine judgment against human sin. And Jesus is applying that figure to himself. 
He said, this is the cup and it's your sin that I'm going to take. This is what I'm going to drink, all right? Because he was to bear the wrath of God's judgment against sin, against everything that we do. Not only is he going to drink the cup, but he's going to do it, it says, voluntarily. He's going to do this by his choice. It says you can't be baptized. You, you, you can also be baptized in my baptism, a parallel thought. In the Hebrew scripture, being underwater was this picture of calamity, okay? Being underwater was this picture of calamity. It was being overwhelmed by calamity. And here Jesus faced it. He was bearing the burden of God's judgment on sin, which involved overwhelming suffering and his death. Now, James and John probably still had the thought of a messianic battle. So when they say we can, they're thinking, I'm showing my willingness to fight. I'm all in on this, all right? I'm willing to do it, but they were missing it. And Jesus is trying to explain to them, look, you are out of your depth here. I'm speaking to something so much greater than what you're putting your head around. You're out of your depth. And he's telling them that you have to have the willingness to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel. This is a reminder for each of us. Discipleship is not easy. If someone told you it was, they lied to you, okay? Discipleship is a willingness to make sacrifices and follow Jesus even when it's difficult. This is the place that we lose so many people. And Jesus tells them they will suffer. If you remember, James was later martyred for his faith, and John undoubtedly endured uh, his share of suffering over and over and over again for Christ. And then Jesus goes on. He's like, I explained three things about the, the honor and kingdom. First, it's going to be granted. Second, the Father grants it. And third, it's going to be granted according to his plan. In short, God is sovereign. God has a plan. It's not ours to worry about honor. It's ours to worry about faithfulness. When we look at the story, we see James and John, like most of us, have this feeling. And we see the other 10 disciples discover that James and John have tried to circumvent them. And they're like, we want the chief seats as well. There's the same spiritual state that's going on. The other disciples come in and they're mad as well. All right? Now, I want to... I want to say something about this. I, I had a unique experience because um, sometimes we can look at these disciples and we're like, you're crazy. You don't understand what, what's going on. I, I had the unique ability. My first job, one of my first jobs out of college is that I, I worked for a, a large uh, NGO and we took uh, teenagers and adults up to the Senate the Congress and to the White House to advocate on the world's poorest poor. It was one of my favorite jobs ever. And what's amazing is how cocky some of the people would come in thinking like, I can speak truth to power. And every time that I would get them ready to go up to the Hill to meet with their Senator or their Congressman or someone within the White House, it was like a ghost had hit them. Like they were like, they were like white as a ghost. They, they would be nervous. There is this thing where we get close to power, we get close to the seeking greatness, and like we can get sucked into it. One of my favorite stories is like I train them, and they don't understand why I train them, but I train them over and over again how to not pass out when you're meeting with someone in this office, all right? 
Like the whole detail of Congress is to have extravagance, to show power, to show might. And when you enter in, you can get nervous. And there was this one girl, we, we were, it was uh, right when uh, Obama was running for president. And we, it was the Chicago delegation. And, and we were going to meet with them. And it was all stir when they did it. And, and we couldn't meet in their main uh, meeting room. We had to meet in his office. But we weren't meeting with him. We were just meeting with his chief of staff. But they were so nervous about it. And so we had to squeeze into this room and some of us had to stand against the wall. And I walked to each person. I said, trust me, don't lock your knees. Whatever you do, do not lock your knees. And they were nervous and you can feel it on their thing. And I remember I was standing right next to this girl, this poor girl, greatest moment of my life. And she starts to faint a little bit and she goes down. Well, why she goes down, she happens to knock over signed boxing gloves by Muhammad Ali hit a picture of Michelle and the girls and knock it over and fall into a sign guitar by Bono. This was the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. She said, I got so nervous. I got so nervous I couldn't stay up. And I said, it's all right. You'll have a funny story to tell. If you don't tell it, I'll tell a bunch of people. So I apologize if you're watching this, whoever that was. But power does something to us. We want glory. We really do. We want greatness. And Jesus, James and John know this because they saw it. The Congress and the Senate and the White House is nothing compared to what they saw Jesus do on the Transfigured Mountain. They want to be part of it. We all want to be part of it. Let's read on 41 through 45. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a what? A ransom for many. Jesus now begins to deal with their spiritual state. The disciples desire glory and status. And he's like, it's incompatible with the kingdom of a suffering servant. All right? This is true of us as well. When our spiritual state becomes self-seeking, when we worry about honor, when we worry about glory, when pride begins to slip into our lives, we don't get it. We don't understand the kingdom. Often I see Christians leaving this completely unchecked, if we're being completely transparent. This gets a little bit uncomfortable for me. These are the types of sins that we don't deal with, okay? Pride and self-seeking needs to be dealt with because Jesus dealt with it. And, the, and Jesus contrasted greatness with the world's kingdoms and God's rule, all right? And he's like, the worldly leaders, what do they do? They lord it over people. They tend to oppress and dominate people. They tend to know that they are in power and they exercise authority over them. Sometimes, many times, I would make the case, they exploit people to get what they want. But it's different for Jesus followers because we are under God's rule. That is not 
what he's in the business for. He says, whoever wants to become great, let him be literally translated. It's literally translated. Let him be a house servant. Okay? Let him be a house servant. One who voluntarily makes themselves useless to, or useful to others. That is the term that he's saying. Not sometimes, not when it's convenient, not when I'm going to get something in return. I often see that here in the church. It's why I will never manipulate you guys to come serve. It's not about what you're going to get in return. It's not about what we're doing in this church. It's about do you understand the kingdom and are you willing to be a house servant to many? It's a lifestyle. It's exactly the opposite of the situations that the disciples are imagining themselves in. They want privilege and respect and Jesus flips it on its head. Whoever aspires to be first, first is great. If so, here's how you do it. Forfeit your rights to serve any and all. That's what he's saying. Many people will leave when they hear this message, but that's what he's saying. A disciple is to serve others. That's the definition. Not your own interests, but voluntarily and sacrificially. It says here, put it up again, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word life here is his complete self. It's inclusive of his er earthly life, his body. It's, it means his feelings and his emotions as well. And it's the life afterwards, right? The earthly life leaves, okay? It's inclusive. It says this, this is this idea that Jesus came and he gave every essence of his being to this, all right? And he did it on behalf as a ransom meaning there was a price of release for you and for me, for all of us. There was a price that had to be paid. And Jesus comes and he humbles himself to death on a cross. And the question is, if that is true, then how can his servants expect or demand ease and privilege? Because we really can't. Paul lays it out clearly, Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul starts this important message with four ifs, okay? It can actually be translated, these ifs can actually be translated since or because, and it reads better probably if you read it that way. Since we are united with Christ, since we can take comfort in his love, since we have a common spirit, because of his tenderness and his compassion, that is our encouragement. Because of that, we are to be Christ-minded, okay? In the church, you and me, 
we are to be operating as one mind and one spirit. This gets weird, right? But we do that because of who Christ is, okay? Now, what can mess that all up? Because Paul's going to lay it out. Paul says selfish ambition is what messes that up. Yeah. He says that we ha there's no value to it. He says, instead, put on humility. As followers of the way, we fight continually. I fight continually with that. All right? I have to fight as a pastor any self-seeking and self-promoting attitude. I was running this morning saying, Lord, weed it out of me because I know that I've been self-promoting and I know that I have my self-interest in mind over and over again. And I want to humble myself, humble myself. We fight an attitude that it creates. Because if everyone has self-ambition, if everyone has pride that starts to creep up, what begins to happen? Division can, can happen. And Paul's like, we do not need division in the family. We don't need division in your families, and we don't need division in the family of God. Because it will lead to vain conceit, right? It's wrong to elevate yourself over others. You're not to have a, a self-promoting spirit. Pride is simply this, exalting yourself above the glory of God and the good of others. So we humble ourselves, all right? And humility begins with our mindset. Hum humility of mind is opposite of self-promotion. So how are you to humble yourself? Paul's going to lay that out as well. By surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. And when we do that, Paul says, we value others above yourself. All right? When we, fall, when we say the Jesus is the Lord of our lives, then you are valuing others above yourself. This is a mathematical equation. The term that they use here is like a mathematical equation. It's literally we calculate other people as more important than ourselves. I thought cheer there, but it was like silence. Sometimes the message in church is opposite of that. The gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, should promote a humble mindset. Prayer should put us on our knees in front of our creator with open hands, like I've got nothing in this world besides you. Worship allows us to look up to God and put him in the right spot and see ourselves in light of God's greatness, not the greatness that we think we are, right? right. And when we go through trials, it humbles us. And yet most of the time, our hearts still struggle with pride and self-seeking. But Jesus in Mark 10, and then Paul here says, where are you to look to see humility really worked out in your lives? Where are you to look? Where, where is this supposed to take place? And he says, there's no model greater. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality, equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. The first step of rooting this out, think of it as like weeding your soul in this, right? Of pride and self-centeredness and needing the glory. Do what Jesus did. Empty your ego out. Empty your ego out. Jesus was God incarnate, all right? He did not diminish his deity. Paul's not saying he diminished his deity. He did not become less fully God. Instead of going that route, he, he sacrificed. He surrendered every advantage that he could have had. And he did it to move from royalty and majesty to a servant. This is who we follow. If we call ourselves Jesus followers, this is who he is. As Christians, we're followers of the way. We see it played out very clearly. Greatness is those who serve. So how well are we doing that? Serving. Serving your boss. Serving your coworker who is kind of annoying. Does anybody have that? I have them. Just joking, everyone. Team. <laughs> serve your spouse. Serve your neighbor. Serve your kids. Serve one another with no self-seeking and no self-promotion and no glory and no I'm expecting something in return. I know every church uses this to say, sign up for kids' ministry, sign up for greetings, you're signing up for... I'm not saying that because Jesus is saying, I want to start a revolution. I guarantee in worldly mindset and kingdom mindset, if you do this, you will be called great. If you literally serve your boss, if you literally serve your coworkers, if you serve your kids and serve one another, everyone is going to say, look at Bertha, she is so great. But if she's trying to elevate herself above others, no one's calling you great. And Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom works. Literally, the gospel advances when we behave this way. This is how the gospel advances. There's nothing that I can do from stage where all of a sudden the revival hits and God, and we have a thousand people in here. You know what, Will? Man, a bunch of redeemed people out there serving, being less and saying, how can I serve you? And when they say, what are you doing? You say, Jesus was the servant of all, and that's my, who I follow. Amen. I had a week, too, just completely transparent with you. Yesterday, as I'm prepping for this sermon, I told Meg, I'm actually tired of pouring out. Like I'm, I was, it was just a week where it was just like, there was just a lot of pouring out. And uh, I had to confess. I said, Lord, forgive me. It's not going to never be pride. There's not going to be never self-promoting. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is what we seek and we actually view it as getting ourselves right when God, when we understand that self-promoting and self-seeking and pride come up and we call it what it is, sin within us. 